So the topic of metrics is definitely one of the toughest areas of product management. And I'm sure you agree with me on that. And learning, therefore, how to master this is an essential for a product person. Now, in this episode, we'll dive deep into this topic, the pitfalls around metrics and how to avoid them in various scenarios by asking some fundamental questions, you know, or first principles, as my guest, Gif Constable, labels them. Now, Gif is a product leader, entrepreneur, and author. He was most recently the chief product officer at Meetup and earlier was a chief executive officer at NEO, a global innovation consulting company acquired by Pivotal. He's the author of two books on how to test new business ideas, which are actually used as core curriculum in top university entrepreneurship programs around the world, and publishes science fiction when life permits under the pen name GW Constable. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Shirazian, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Gif, welcome to PM Hub. Oh, nice to be here. For sure. Now, I'm very excited to talk with you about this, I guess, uh, rather interesting topic and actually quite popular, and I would say maybe not as well talked about out there on the metrics and goals. Uh, but I was thinking like maybe to give our listeners a bit uh, more kind of context into this topic itself, if you could uh, talk about, uh, you know, your upcoming book and how this kind of topic actually fits into that. Sure, sure. You know, I'm a, I'm a practitioner. I've, I've spent my life now going on 26, 27 years in software, trying to put new things into the world um, at different stage and different sized companies um, ranging from two-person startups with something brand new to you know products that touch millions of people every day around the world and the books that i have written i've written two so far one called talking to humans one called testing with humans i wrote those books um for two reasons. One is a way to give back um, to the community because I've benefited so much from other people's ideas and other people's mentorship. But two, that writing helps me tighten and sharpen my own thinking. That's why I blog. It's why I write. And the same thing for this new book. I, I, I realized, especially after Meetup, when I was working with some very smart product managers underneath me, I was chief product officer there running product management, design, engineering, data science. Um, and I realized that, you know, I've, I had a really smart team with very diverse backgrounds and experiences. And the primary job I had beyond making sure we were aligned and going in the same direction was helping them make really good decisions with what they were seeing on the ground. And I have this sort of belief that product management, it's a very messy, complicated, multidisciplinary job. It's, it's one of the most multidisciplinary jobs by design. Um, you're a synthesizer, uh, you create bridges and you make things happen. Um, and you do this with other people. The, but the, so this job is really messy and it's really context specific and an effective way to be a product manager at any level of your career is to always be looking outside of your head for great approaches, great lessons, great things to copy and steal, 
but to really think practically about your current context, what, what situation you're in, what you are trying to do, what needs to be done, and to build up from first principles. And where I've seen people go wrong is when they copy someone else's playbook and they apply it to their own situation and it's the wrong context. And so there's lots of books, and there's a long way to answer, sorry, but there's lots of books that give advice. And the trouble with so many of these advice books is that if you take them as playbooks, you're gonna go wrong. So what I was thinking about for myself is what I need and what I think my product managers need is a, a backstop of questions to make sure you ask. Because I figure any smart product manager, as long as they ask the right questions, they can get to good answers. Um, so that's what got me thinking about this first principles product management book. And it's it's been very tough going, um, not least because I've got multiple projects and I'm busy, but it's also actually much harder than writing an advice book because I'm trying to think about what are some very <laughs> efficient, concise yeah. questions that you need to ask yeah. that are that are not completely obvious. And, and just to be clear on that, it's not that chances are you probably will be asking a whole bunch of these questions, but it's let, these are the ones that you should make sure that you haven't forgotten. And too often, I have gotten myself into trouble by not asking a question. I really knew better. I really should have asked. So it's really like what I'm trying to create is a bit of a workbook rather than an advice book for product managers. And we'll see. I need to start battle testing it in public a whole lot more, but we'll see how it, how it goes. Yeah. No, I love that approach. And what, there's a saying actually says a well-crafted question is already 50%, you know, of the answer itself. <laughs> right. And uh, there's, yeah, there's a lot of truth into that, right? So you're right, because as you're thinking, and like one kind of like, you know, it's so easy to, you know, when you're going after a solution and kind of like talk about your approach to that solution, but then you want to kind of like, as you mentioned, you know, you can't just copy and paste it uh, everywhere. So you have to kind of like think about the question. So I love what you're doing. And uh, that's that's such a great idea to go about writing this first pl uh, principles book uh, that you're up to. Now, I'm curious to know, Gif, uh, why is this topic of metrics and goals so hard? Yeah, right. Well, in some ways, everything is grounded upon it. I think maybe that's why, because it's so important, it's why it's so fraught. Um, your Your goals just, they dictate what you do, right? Because if you think about it, strategy and tactics come from your goals. You have to know what you're shooting for to be able to decide how are we going to get there. So a goal, goal is like yeah. it's the most fundamental primitive uh, that we're working with. Metrics uh, basically instantiate. They make our goals, uh, they make them measurable, they make them real. Some things aren't clearly measurable. measurable. Um, and, and metrics are an area where it's easy to go wrong. Uh, both of these areas, I mean, OKRs, right? OKRs uh, have been around for a while, and I still so rarely come into contact with companies that feel comfortable and confident with how they do OKRs. Matter of fact, there's a lot of people, including, I think, Marty Kagan and others, that are starting to turn a little sour on OKRs um, simply because of watching companies and people struggle with it. Although I tend to think that people struggle with any methodology 
doesn't matter whether it's Lean Startup or OKRs or really anything you might mention, people will figure out ways to, to go off the rails. So, but metrics and goals are, are very tricky uh, because they're so fundamentally important. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And you're right, absolutely right. Now, if you want to go about, I guess, jumping into this topic, if like, where would you start on this topic if you were to want to kind of like take it from the right approach you mentioned, you know, starting off from the goals and, you know, adding some metrics to it? Where do you, but let's say if you're in the context of the first principles, where do you start? Well, you know, I think about where do people go wrong? And so if you're then thinking about what are the backstop questions to ask, okay, where do, where do people slip up, uh, even if they know better? And one of the most common areas that I've seen, maybe it's two, could be one or two, is has to do with skepticism around data. Um, and the related concept is around counter metrics or, or side effects. And so skepticism, what I mean by skepticism is that we, there's a common mistake that happens when people worship the numbers as facts. And this is complicated because numbers to a certain extent are facts, right? They're numbers, they're not guesses. Uh, it's, you're, you're seeing something that's actually a conversion rate. You're seeing number of users grow. Those are facts, those are truth. But the trouble with numbers, when you start putting it on a pedestal like that, you start to forget that our data has bias in terms of what we collect, how we collect it. Um, it's often our gaps uh, and, and versus what is actually complete can be dictated by our domain models and our taxonomies and all these things in our products. And, uh, and it gets really easy to get lost in causation versus correlation. And I've, I've seen this in action. I could tell some stories about that. The, the counter metrics is a separate topic uh, where people forget when they're so busy chasing and optimizing a particular number, they forget to ask really hard questions around the negative side effects about what they might be doing. And that can happen in product, it could happen in marketing, it could happen with uh, you know rewarding a CEO based on a share price. There's lots of examples of how over-optimizing for a particular number can actually cause really, really bad uh, additional effects. And so, when I am thinking about metrics, it's probably a little easier to talk about than goals. Goals are so specific to a context and a team and a company and a stage. And we can get there, we can go talk about that if you'd like. But when it comes to metrics, yeah, th those two topics of thinking about skepticism and thinking about counter metrics are, are really big ones for me. Yeah, no, that's such, that's such a good point, especially going back to, you know, it's basically, uh, you know, when you just you mentioned perfectly and when you put the data on the pedestal and look at it into isolation and not actually the side effects, that's where the trouble comes, right? When you kind of like uh, forget all about the correlations, you know, that that comes to that. And also the counter metrics. I mean, if you were to give us a couple of examples, uh, maybe one or two, uh, not, not, not too much, but I know you have a lot, but I'm curious to know, like, uh, where have you seen it a lot? Like if you can give us some examples where we have the primary or like, you know, some metrics, North Star metrics, and there's a counter metrics in place, but then it get often, it gets overlooked. I'm curious to hear. Well, so I was working with, I've done a lot of marketplaces over the years. I was working with one and they were struggling with retention. 
it was a subscription business model. And so, and, you know, it was a, of a good enough size. I'd been running for, for almost a decade. So there was plenty of data to work off of. And the data science team was looking at this, looking at the data and saying, okay, like we want to find leading indicators, right? That's best practice that everyone talks about. Go find the leading indicators. So the data science team sort of attacked the numbers and said, let's not be sort of polluted by our hypotheses and our biases. Let's go see what the truth is in the numbers. And what the numbers said is that if we actually um, connect more of the buyers and sellers together, so let, let's take a buyer. If I connect them to more sellers, then that buyer is willing to continue subscribing and paying for our service. Uh, and if you went and you spoke and tried to back this up with qualitative research, uh, the buyers would also say, yes, I want as many connections as possible. This was a FinTech marketplace. It was, it was an M&A marketplace. And a lot of these buyers were people looking to acquire companies. These could be private equity buyers. They could be corporate buyers. And they like looking at a lot of deals. They like shaking a lot of hands. So you had, you had the data science say they want more connections. And you had the qualitative research saying, give me more connections. And if you weren't skeptical about that, then that could lead you astray. And it actually did lead them astray. So what they started to do is they started to think, how do we get more connections? How do we introduce more and more sellers to these buyers? They tried doing some things with product features. They also started doing things with their customer success team. So the customer success team was manually making connections, throwing people at the buy side. And what started to happen was the buyers were going, boy, this product and this service doesn't just has so much noise, right? This isn't efficient. This isn't a good use of my time. It's just kind of crap on this thing. Um, I'm not seeing great deals. I'm not seeing great opportunities. Now that that was actually wrong. But by trying to force this connections game that was going on, um, they were creating this misperception about the quality or lack thereof. You know, in, in M&A, which is the domain that we're talking about right now, right? Just like, just like on eBay with stuff, value is in the eye of the beholder. One, what one person is really excited to see, someone else might think is junk. And so instead of really thinking about uh, matching people up with the best matches to increase their odds of a transaction, which was actually the underlying goal of the buyers and sellers on this platform, the company got very distracted by trying to max out connections. And there were, there were a lot of side effects that, had, that um, got triggered by people chasing this metric. And it was, there was a both a combination of not having, not looking deeper into what was really going on, into people's true goals, as opposed to just looking at the data and the data science itself, um, and not thinking about the side effects of what was happening as you chased metrics. So there's an example that sort of touches on both. Yeah, that's 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 a that's really fascinating. You know, like just taking enough time to thinking about how this data uh kind of is affecting the other metrics in place and like you mentioned this example now what are what are some characteristics if you will of, of a good metric in your opinion well i mean it depends on what level you are 
playing it, right? If you're, are you on a team? Are you talking about the North Star metric for the company? Um, where would you like to go there? Let's take it from the top and then just see how, how that kind of like trickles down. So from the North Star perspective, well, I'm not a believer in the, there's only one metric that matters. I think companies and businesses are more complicated than that. I do think that it's useful to have a primary metric that you're pushing forwards, um, sort of the, the get everyone's shoulder against the same wheel, right? Um, and, and align the company towards a specific shared goal. Now, there's going to be lots of other metrics you watch. There's going to be other metrics that are important. But in terms of the change that you're trying to enact for your business and your customer right now, having one metric to rally around can be really powerful. And there's a number of questions that are useful to ask about this, this number. Um, a lot of people talk about making, when, again, this, this is where it sort of breaks down between the advice you get and best practice versus specific context. So a lot of people talk about how a metric should be a leading indicator of customer behavior. What, what is a thing that you want to see them do that both makes them feel really successful and also increases the odds that they are thrilled with your product, that they're happy to pay for your product, they'll continue using your product. But the fact is, is that that is not always the best um, North Star metric. In a lot of cases, it is. But there are situations and contexts where that's not the case. Um, sometimes you're at a really early stage, you're putting a new business into the market and you don't know that yet. And you don't have enough data to give you an honest leading indicator of behavior. Now you could take a stab at it, or what you could do is um, choose something that is a little bit more of a lagging indicator in terms of activity, retention, or even a financial metric until you've gotten enough data to really get towards that leading metric. The other is that there's also, con and this, this I ran into recently where I was working with a company where they were trying to change some of their internal culture around how they were approaching business and their products and their customers. And they had been so sales oriented, super, super sales and growth oriented. And they actually explicitly wanted to choose a North Star metric that was around retention because they, they needed to enact that change within themselves, not just um, be entirely focused on the change outside of their walls. So, you know, the, the, it gets messy, right? It, it's so context specific, all this stuff. It's like when people say, how do you do product? I'm like, well, it depends on what we're dealing with here. And this is, this is a classic uh, case example. So I think that there's this question of should should the metric be a leading indicator or, or, or should, of customer behavior? Maybe that's the case. Um, or should it be a leading indicator of financial results? Or should it be um, a leading indicator of a cultural change that you need to impact inside your business? Um, and there's probably a few more variations of that. But asking yourself about the kind of change that needs to happen and where it needs to happen, I think is a, is a really important element of choosing a north star uh, among many i can yeah. i can give you more uh but i'll uh, if you if you want to keep on going deeper yeah no that's that no that's very interesting and uh you mentioned that and i i like the way you position that i kind of i guess uh, it's like it's like when you when you go about 
and ask these questions. It's, it's not about certainly, I think, and I, I think this is exactly the distinction between your approach of like there's best practices versus, you know, you want to go about the principles and the questions. And when you form it that way in a question mode, you just like questioning, hey, is this kind of like the case for this situation? Does it apply to us? Uh, you know, choosing a metric, you know, leading indicator versus, you know, lagging and, uh, you know, all the other factors you mentioned. Now, uh, what are some questions that, you know, you think it's worthwhile to consider when you have limited amount of data? Let's say you're a startup, you don't have too much data. Well, you know, w when you're working with small amounts of data, you, you need to make sure you're getting a lot of qualitative inputs and feedback. You want to be doing that all the time, um, but that's particularly important. But I think a really important uh, misstep that people make when they're working with limited data is um, they will role play scenarios in their heads, but they won't actually get into a spreadsheet. And again, this is something that I ran into recently as well. I was working with a fairly new team. I was helping them think about uh, their, their North Star metric. Like, again, what was the most important thing that they had to chase? And we had to have some discussions around what did important mean? You know, that's unpacking that is a big conversation. But once we came out of that and we started thinking about retention and retention metrics as a key activity, uh, we tossed out a particular number. We said, all right, well, if we have our customers coming back and using the product at least three times a month, month over month, then you know that, that retention rate could be a really interesting metric. And at first, it sounded great to everybody. And then I went and I plugged it into a spreadsheet and I was looking at this and going, oh, wait, hold on. The way we've defined this metric doesn't make any sense because it just creates an anchor. Um, if what we're saying is let's take the number of people that uh, our numerator who are using the product three times a month and our denominator is the total number of people that could potentially be using this product that have, that have registered uh, or are still engaged, sorry, that are not, that have registered, uh, then what happens is that it, that registered number starts acting as an anchor. And month mm -hmm. over month, you could see that even if they were doing pretty well, um, retaining a core group of people, this group that they had churned, they could have churned six months ago, well, was all of a sudden dragging down uh, their metric. And I realized that's not, that's not a great, and this gets into some other sort of elements of a good North Star metric. It's not a great metric because it doesn't allow you to watch your progress. It was sort of, the, the numbers would, would be dragging you down um, and, and not allowing you to see what is happening right now. You know, a good metric has a short enough time frame that you could, it doesn't take you months to see results. And you know, previous months don't either lift you up or drag you down. It's it's a little more attuned to what's happening. Are you making progress today? And so coming back to your question, what I found is that by actually getting real, even though, sorry, I say getting real, we were in fantasy land, right? Because we were in spreadsheets and spreadsheets without that aren't coming from actual customer data are still fantasies, but, but it's a phenomenal way to battle test your ideas. And just by actually looking at the numbers as opposed to talking about them, immediately saw the flaw in the metric and flipped to a better one.
Yeah, no, I love that. And I guess one of the going, I guess going back to your example, you were talking about, I think one of the key aspects to it as well is like, what is the cycle? You know, if you want to take, uh, if you want to make sure we're not creating an anchor, like you mentioned, then there needs to be a cycle of, uh, you know, activity that's happening. And then we need to capture those cycles, whatever it could be. It could be, I don't know, a week uh, or could be a bit longer, right? So I guess my question for you is that uh, what if what if there, we are dealing with a situation where the metric that we're trying to define, that the cycle of that like, to getting like, you know, uh, kind of like a, a bell curve, if you will, statistically, is a bit longer. Like, how, how do you go about, you know, uh, going back to your point about it needs to be kind of like it needs to be short enough to give us like, you know, hopefully uh, feedback so kind of like earlier than later on. Then how would you deal with those situations? I'm curious to know. Well, I think that you need to have metrics that you're trying to take action on and the metrics you watch. And both are useful, uh, but you want to be clear in your mind as to which is which. You know, at Meetup, for example, we cared about longer-term retention rates, right? We wanted to do cohort analysis and really understand what was happening to groups over a long period of time. And, okay, well, now as a product team, we want to do something about that. And so we're going to make some changes today that we hope will affect the long-term retention of groups. Well, okay, if you launch that feature today and it takes 12 months to see whether or not it worked, that's a really difficult place to be, right, as a product team. The 12-month retention is something really important to keep watching. And you sort of will, if you're putting out a feature today, you know, it's going to take you months to get there. You want to keep an eye on it. Did it actually accomplish what we wanted to accomplish? But if you're designing your team metric around that, then you're in real trouble. You need to come up with something that gives you a shorter feedback loop, something that is your best guess as a proxy for that long-term retention that might be um, happening in the near term. Again, the more data you have to work with, uh, oftentimes you can work with your data science team to say, hey, do we have a reasonable chance that this short-term proxy might trigger that long-term uh, metric that we are trying to measure? And sometimes the answer, you know, data science people will get uncomfortable because now you're talking real guesswork, especially if you're creating something new where you're not looking at past behavior because you're creating a totally new dynamic. But, you know, you could try to take your best guess. A lot of times what we're doing as product people is taking our best guess, not, you know, making the best decisions we can and moving as fast as we can. But so, yeah, so stay really practical um, as a team to, to know that you're making progress. Try to come up with metrics where you can get feedback on a, on a daily, weekly, or, or sort of at, at slowest, like a 30-day um, time frame. But there's probably going to be some longer-term metrics that you really want to have on your watch list um, to validate whether what you're working on has actually worked. Like what you hear so far? Make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now, let's head back to the show. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And thanks for elaborating on that. No, I guess let's let's take the uh, change gears now and then look at the, the other cases, enterprise 
uh, situations when you have a lot of data. So I'm curious to you know, I guess that that could introduce a lot, introduce a lot of noise out there and a lot of like, you know, uh, you know, correlation taken for causation, all that kind of stuff. I'm curious to know what are what are some questions to think about when you have a ton of data? You know, I gave that one example about uh, the fintech marketplace getting a little caught up with best intentions, uh, where they they saw a number and they thought, oh, that's the cause, when it was actually more of a correlative effect, and they had to think deeper about what was really going on. I think the it's actually really useful to take a step back from the numbers and the data science and all the fanciness and the statistics and all that stuff and, and get really simple and simply say, what are our customers trying to do? <laughs> it's super simple, but it's amazing how often people don't ask this question. But really, yeah. what are they trying to do? Like, yeah. they're going to have goals. They may not always tell you their goals. Their goals might be subconscious, right? Goals are complicated when it comes to customers, right? But they're going to be trying to accomplish something. Something's going to be happening that makes them feel rewarded, that makes them feel happy to be using your product. And then you've got goals as a business. What are your goals? And and if you just like anchor yourself in those two areas and just start asking some really basic questions, all of a sudden you can expose holes in your data that are remarkable. Meetup was amazing. We had, I mean, Meetup like threw off like a terabyte of data a day. It was crazy how much data we had. And yet I often commented with my colleagues how difficult it could be at times to get wisdom out of this, these masses and masses of data. And don't get me wrong, like we were able to do some really phenomenal machine learning things. Um, the, the performance improvements that were happening in terms of personalization and targeting took a long time to get there to get the models right. Um, but uh, it was really able to do some great things with machine learning. And yet at the same time, there were some really basic questions that we struggled to answer about our customer behavior and our goals simply because of the way the domain model, the way the taxonomies worked in the product. You know, so if we wanted to understand, if we sort of said, all right, well, we actually have this hypothesis that there's a few different personality types of meetup organizer. Um, if we wanted to look across those different personality types and think about what are the retention rates that we're seeing, if different things happen, if they have um, if we promote them in different ways, if they're promoting themselves in different ways, if people are joining it, their groups in different cadences and paces, like what makes someone fulfilled and stick around? And it was remarkably hard to answer that question, even though we had just gobs and gobs of data. And yet I, I did feel like the company got to a little bit of a point where it stopped asking those questions instead of being frustrated that it couldn't ask those questions and saying, okay, now we need to go change our taxonomy. We need to be able to like ask and answer these fundamental questions. The company got a little focused on, um, on, on optimizing what they could work with. And, and that's a powerful thing, right? You know, an established business does need to optimize what it has. But when you want to start taking some bigger leaps forward, you've got to ask some more fundamental questions and, so yeah, you know, first principles questions, right? And and there's no designing. You can't read a book of those questions. Those are like the questions that I was asking 
at Meetup were so custom to Meetup. The questions I was I've asked in every single job are so custom. But like these fundamental questions about your customers' goals and your goals, and then saying, like, can I actually get believable answers from this from my data? Um, sometimes the answer is yes if you're lucky, and sometimes you know amazing holes appear, and and then you've got to go plug those holes. This is why, yeah. by the way, I so believe in always, always having as many people doing qualitative research as possible. Not just saying that's the job of the sales team or you know uh, the the UX researcher. Um, the more people that are doing qualitative research, when you match up what is, what you're learning from the qualitative research with the data itself. And all of a sudden you start, it, it, it so often exposes these gaps and these anomalies and these holes and inconsistencies. And those are really interesting places to play as a product person. And you can't spot them if you don't do the qualitative work. Yeah. That's right, that's right. That's such a good point. And actually uh, I was chatting with their product lead at Google not too long ago. And then he was talking about uh, their extensive kind of research approach uh, to their kind of initiatives. And like they were saying, one in five on the product team is a researcher. And actually, a PM is always always, always there in the interviews. And then um, these researchers, they have engineers coming and joining, UX people and everything else. And it was just like fascinating how much time they're spending on the qualitative side. And of course, Google has like, like how much they could like, bajillion amount of like data out there and uh and then that but, but they, they know they have to couple it the qualitative just going back to your point right because um, yeah that's even, even cool google with all the data that they have they grapple with issues of bias in terms of how the data is collected um incompleteness and gaps uh you know it's i've, I've spoken to multiple google people who have said it's amazing with all of our data how often it could be hard to answer questions with the data yeah no, so cool. Awesome. So let's move on to, I guess, some of the uh, on the product person side. Like, what are what are some questions to consider? You know, when designing your own kind of goals as a product person. You know, this one's going to be really basic, but I I still do find some younger product managers forgetting this is just to make sure that the goals that you're setting align match up and align with the goals of the company. And sometimes this is hard because <laughs> there are companies that haven't really done the work to make a clear business and product strategy. And so you're like, well, what am I supposed to connect to? And that's a tough place to be. But what you, you, you can't stop there and say, well, I'll just do the best I can with what I think is right is you've then got to go do the work of talking to the senior executives um, to try to understand and to ask questions that even if a strategy, you know, oftentimes you'll have a CEO who thinks, yeah, I've got a strategy. I know where we're going. Um, everyone does, right? And then if you talk to the employee base, they're, they're like, no, you'll hear 10 different things. Um, so how do you get to either the CEO or someone on the senior team where there is this, this strategy is existing, even if it's not clearly delineated, and ask them questions to try to understand, okay, where are we pushing towards? You know, you, you've also got to make sure, you know, if you're going up a few levels, as you're trying to connect to the, the overall corporate strategy, that you're also connecting to whoever, your manager, your boss, uh, what, what they care about as well. Um, and if there's a dissonance between the two, 
then you've got a job to do to try to align those or ask questions um, to try to figure out, okay, how do we, how do I navigate this? And, and how do we be clear in a non-threatening way with my boss that there seems to be a dissonance there and can they help me um, resolve this? So that's honestly a big one. You know, I've, I've had product managers get really, they fall in love with the feature idea and they, they, they forget to think about the impact itself. Um, and I've had product managers, as they're thinking about the impact, um, they're thinking about what they have really wanted to fix and these metrics that they really want to move, but have actually sort of disconnected and lost touch with where the overall company is trying to go. And that will get you into trouble as a product manager um, if you're off on your own island as opposed to rowing in the same direction as everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the, the, the saying is like the department gets, uh, you know, it's so interesting. It's so funny. Uh, they say, oh, we need, uh, it's a kind of like a typical situation with a lot of product teams from what I'm hearing is that they want more resources, but then they say the resources go to the team who is most aligned with the company goals and strategies. And I think actually it's going to serve you in that perspective as well. Um, and I'm actually myself guilty of that earlier in my career, just, you know, getting excited about an idea and just not taking the time. It's very fundamental to connect what you're doing with the, where the business wants to go. Um, but yeah, I could totally see that. You could, you could be blindsided by that. Totally. You know, resources is an interesting question always. It's so much resources oftentimes should be tied to risk level as well as upside. And those two often go together, you know, just like investing in the stock market. If you want a greater return of a stock, you need to choose a riskier stock. It's the same thing for product features. Um, if you want to see a bigger non-incremental impact, you're going to need to take a bigger riskier swing. But while something still has a lot of risk, you usually don't want to give it a lot of resources. As the, as the risk levels come down, you can apply more resources. That doesn't mean, and a lot of people hate that term resources <laughs> as well, but we'll, we'll continue using it for lack of a better one right now. But yeah. it doesn't mean that simply because um, uh, you, you're being forced to stay small and scrappy that you're working on the wrong thing. Um, it could be, you know, you actually need to take these really big swings. Again, that, again this is where it all depends on what a company needs to do. You know, Meetup had, some people have heard me say this, uh, that when I arrived at Meetup, there was this big dissonance between what the product teams were working on, which were very high odds, but kind of low return projects. You know, all were going to improve the product and the customer experience. They were all going to lift metrics. Um, they were all working on things that had a very high chance of succeeding. But the actual kind of return to the customer and the business was going to be relatively low. And, you know, at that point, the company had been purchased by WeWork and had these big outsized goals. Meetup is now an independent company again, but had these big outsized goals. And there's a huge dissonance between uh, this sort of at the corporate level, the financial targets that were being set, and then the actual sort of product metrics and projects that were being chosen and worked on, they were never going to add up. It was a huge dissonance between the two. And that's something that uh, I had to work with the CEO and the teams to align and, and sort of bring into the correct focus. Yeah, 
No, I love that. I love that approach. And that's the actual job of product person, to be honest, right? So uh, like just the whole discovery piece and all that uh, instead of like, you know, marginal steps. So no, I love that. Uh, well, you know, marginal steps uh-huh. can be, they can be really powerful. You know, again, this. I don't, there's no, I don't have, there's no judgment call of what's good or bad in terms of a big swing versus a smaller optimization. Um, some small optimizations within a large company can deliver huge financial returns, right? Absolutely worth it. Um, again, it's all context specific. Yeah, no, that's right. If, if, if there's, if there's one thing I'm going to take away myself from this chat, if is that I, I love that, uh, the way you're looking at it and you can't just put everything into one context and everything is, you got to look at, look at it from its unique perspective. Right. So, uh, I love this topic. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm glad you're seeing that. It's, it's also really useful when you're reading advice out there or listening to advice in podcasts, as you think about, uh, if someone's giving very playbooky or very specific advice, th- it's always worth thinking about the context with where they came to those conclusions. And so if someone was working on the ads product at Google, right, where you're working with huge numbers and and both financial as well as usage numbers versus whether they were at a startup uh, that's pre, pre, pre-market fit and things like that, it's like understanding the context or taking a guess as to the context when someone's giving a little more actionable advice can often help you um, filter, okay, I'm not gonna apply this one-to-one to my situation. Um, I might steal a few things here or there, but if you if you sort of understand, okay, I can kind of get how they got to, to that conclusion and that recommendation um, based on their context, it can sometimes help you decide what to translate or not to your own. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Cool. So I guess uh, when it comes to, you know, increasing the odds, you talked about the risks uh, to some extent. I'm, I'm curious to know, if, what are some factors, if you will, to consider to increase, uh, to kind of increase the odds of hitting, hitting your metrics? You know, one of my favorite things to do these days is a pre-mortem. You know, we'll always do on the engineering side, we'll always do a post-mortem when something, you know, all of a sudden you have a... Uh, an unexpected bug or system error. You know, you, you, you do a root cause analysis. Those are fabulous. But I love getting a cross-functional team together and doing a pre-mortem and saying, all right, we're about to embark on this project to move metric X to cause this change in our for our customer, for the better, for our business, for the better. Let's project out. And the time frame is going to vary depending on your project. You know, you could be three months, it could be twelve months, it could be thirty-six months. Let's project out and say, all right, like we've done all this work, and you know what? We failed. It didn't work. Why? Now let's come up with all the different reasons why this didn't work. Oh. Our- we didn't have the right resources on the team, you know, or our team was too big or our team was too small or the, the, the CEO came in with a shiny project or, or the data taxonomy was wrong or the, like we, we engineered it in the wrong way, you know, everything, right? Design topics, business topics, culture, team topics, um, engineering topics, like throw everything in the kitchen sink at this with your imagination as to why did it fail? And then you get to look at this and go, all right, which one of these things, uh, if they go wrong, 
actually would cause a high impact, like they'd really hurt us, and which of these have a reasonable likelihood of happening, i.e. We're, we're scared of them. And for those, those items that seem dangerous, they're high impact, and there's a reasonable likelihood it could happen, you can prioritize those and say, all right, what are our mitigating actions that we want to take? And you come up with that list and say, all right, which ones of these do we um, have the time for? And uh, do we want to actually move out on? But just that simple exercise of, of tossing your crystal ball forward and trying to come up with all the different ways. Um, and, and you don't just want people thinking about their own domain. You don't just want the product manager thinking about, uh, say, the business or the designer thinking about design and the engineering thinking about engineering. You're like, you'll miss things that way. Get people really thinking outside of their own domain um, and, and trying to spot these potential landmines. You know, a lot of landmines, you, you're going to decide we can't do anything about that or we don't want to do anything about that. But if you spot something that you can actually work on that meaningfully changes your success you know, trajectory, it's like awesome. Well done. You know, I'm also a big believer. Obviously, I wrote a whole book on running experiments called Testing with Humans um, and using experimental uh, means and qualitative research as a way to, to test ideas, to validate ideas. Um, so that's really key. But just from a, like a day-to-day -day product manager perspective, uh, running pre-mortems can be really healthy. Uh, you know, I, I was just actually recently working with a team and they started running these recurring ones. They... They ran a pre-mortem before their alpha. They ran a pre-mortem about their beta, and they're running pre-mortems about okay, what are we gonna, what's gonna happen post-beta? Um, so it's not like a thing that they're just doing once and then putting it aside for two years. Uh, they're actually keeping this activity going, and they've assigned someone to really pay attention to these risks and continually update the team with where they are. Okay, we don't think this is a risk anymore. We're gonna take it off the board or you know, this thing is actually starting to flash red or this thing's in good shape because we're working on it. Yeah, no, no, I love that. And, you know, the, the other subtle thing about doing this pre-mortems GIF is when you do it, you, you kind of like it's a mindset shift as well when you kind of like you, everybody's turning into a scientific mindset of skepticism. You know, I, this, this project or whatever you're working on could be, you know, a pet project, someone's really favorite, whatever they really, there's a lot of biases around that it could be in the place. Yep. And just like shifting it from this pre-mortem puts you in a different mindset about thinking about it and kind of like, I get just doing that, let alone all the other good stuff about it. It's, it's also a, a decent impact on kind of like increasing your odds of, uh, you know, you kind of like doing the right things. Right. I totally agree. I think it's a great point. I, you know, it's almost, <laughs> the word safe space can be loaded, but it's almost like a safe space to be a skeptic where, I mean, look, you know, you it takes vision, it takes optimism, it takes, in some ways, irrational optimism to bring change into this world, right? It's, it's a lot of work. And great products arise from that vision, that arises from that, that that optimism that you can actually make a dent in the world when so many things are arrayed against you and yet if you only listen to that while your overall vision might be right if you don't get the details right and the execution rate as well you're host 
doesn't matter if the high-level vision is right if the details are wrong. That's the product game. We got to get the details right. And so, yeah, how do you how do you create a space for you know people don't like being negative. They don't like looking at this. Um, some people can like, why are you being a downer? Um, our biases also, our cognitive biases really try to prevent us from doing this. Now you can have people that go the other way. They're total negative Nancy's. They're naysayers. You know, those people don't ship anything, right? They're stuck in analysis paralysis. They say no to everything, right? That's the opposite side. But the best place to be is balanced right in the middle. And so anyway, long way of saying, I totally agree with you, uh, Cyrus, that, that this exercise is a very safe way to expose things that, um, that you might be worried about without seeming like you're dragging everyone down, that you're just trying to be a, a, a naysayer. Yeah, no, 100%. I love that. Now, I guess my last question, Gif, is about, you know, big topic, I guess, around you know, communication. And I guess once I had a coach and he told me, you can't bait a fish, you know, with a strawberry, you have to kind of figure out, uh, you know, what, what, what it works like in a way for your audience, right? So I'm curious to know what, what are some factors to consider when you're communicating your metrics with different stakeholders? You can't bait a fish with a strawberry. <laughs> I'm still unpacking that one in my mind. <laughs> um, well, I mean, communication is obviously one of the most important things that a product manager does. Uh, you know, you're 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 spearheading working with marketing to communicate outside the walls, but you play this really critical role of communicating within your walls, both the team level as well as up and down and across the organization. And so, you know, if you want team alignment, metrics are a really useful way to get team alignment. We haven't talked about that at all, but I think everyone knows that to be the case. You know, it gives you a concrete thing to hold yourself accountable, to shoot for, and everyone can sort of see how, how are we doing? Um, the best ones anyway, you know, not uh, actionable and tangible metrics. Those, those are good metrics. So, but it doesn't help you if the team doesn't know what it is. It doesn't help you if the team doesn't know how you're doing. Um, towards it. Uh, and then you've got to make a, a similar decision around the rest of the organization. But just starting with the team, right? Very basic question. Of like, do I have an easy way for the team to be informed about our measurable progress? And that could be as simple as, you know, if you, you know, right now we're all in pandemic land, so we're not in the same office space anymore. But, you know, I've had people just put sticky notes on walls that they update on a regular basis. Um, it could be a Google Doc, um, right? But you need to, the, the more it's not in their faces the way it can be in a physical space, the more often you need to um, bring it back. So if you, let's say you're having a, a weekly meeting of some kind, like a sprint planning meeting, iteration planning meeting, whatever you're calling it. And you know that, that could be a great opportunity to say, I'm just going to flash this in front and just make sure we all know our dashboard. Here's how we're doing. Because when we're on our Zoom calls and in our text editors, we're not looking at this day in, day out. So you know, making sure that people understand what the goal is and making sure that people understand your progress towards the goal on a regular basis, that's really useful. And then you've got to ask yourself whether the rest of the organization should be um, informed about the progress you're making, the challenges you're making, how you're doing against 
um, against your goals. Now, again, this gets really context specific. Sometimes the answer is yes, overshare. Sometimes the answer is tread carefully. Um, it depends on your culture. It depends on the project. Um, depends on a lot of different things. But if you do decide that it is beneficial to um, share this stuff out, and most of the time, I would say it is beneficial. Uh, an old uh, colleague of mine had this phrase, control your narrative. And I always love that because if you don't control your narrative, someone else will. Mm. And so part of controlling your narrative is helping people understand what you're trying to do, why, and how you're doing towards it. Right? So if, you're, if you do decide that you should communicate, there's some basic questions to ask, which is, do, you know, do other people understand the communication and do they appreciate the frequency, the method, and the style of communication? And that, just a little bit of, you know, either a little survey or some qualitative research will, uh, internally, will, will get you some quick answers. Um, but these are all, these are all really important. It's, it's really important to not get so lost in the work of shipping something that you forget about these pieces as well. Because um, I've seen that uh, overturn the boat for lack of a better expression and metaphor of, of more than one product manager was they chased a goal and they really forgot to control the narrative and forgot to communicate. And, and they didn't realize that sort of some of the winds were shifting around them uh, as corporate goals or strategies uh, or, or even context was changing. All of a sudden, let's say the company is now um, thinking about putting itself up for sale where it wasn't when they started the project. And, um, and you know that's something that that just wasn't shared broadly across the company, but because this person wasn't actually being clear about what they were chasing and why and how they were going, uh, they sort of slipped between the cracks, and all of a sudden it was like oh, you, you you've invested how much in what? Um, mm -hmm. And oftentimes that can land on uh, fairly or unfairly on the product manager. And so again, control your narrative. That's the <laughs> that's the nutshell. I love that. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Gif, for, for all your insights. Uh, now, where can our listeners, uh, you know, get to hear, uh, I guess, read or hear maybe, I guess, uh, uh, more of your thoughts, uh, kind of like what you talk about. And also, I guess you have you have this book coming up. Are you still looking for, you, you mentioned you're looking for uh, still feedback from the community? Yes, absolutely. You know, the the way I want to do this is, I've got a, um, I just want to put things out, have people who are game to try them, battle test them. I know some of the questions are going to be dumb. Some are going to be interesting. Some are going to be confusing. Uh, I think like anything that's in real, I'm a rough draft culture kind of person. And I want to sort of, it's, this is only going to be, this is a really hard task. It's only going to get good if it's truly battle tested by people out there. So if you're interested in battle testing it with me, um, you can send me uh, a note at gif.constable at gmail. That's my email. Um, my blog is gifconstable.com. And actually there is a, it's, it's actually getting a little dated, uh, but in, in the semi-recent archives, um, I wrote about this probably back in August or September. I wrote about this project and um, created a little Google form for people who, who were game to battle test these questions and ideas with me, and a whole bunch of people have responded. Now it's on me at this point. I need to actually get something in their hands. Um, and I'm also on Twitter, uh, Gifco, G-I-F-F-C-O. And between the email, the blog, and, and Twitter, it's pretty easy to get a hold of me. 
100%. I'll make sure to add the link to all these uh, different resources you mentioned. Um, Gif, once once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about uh, metrics and goals. Oh, well, thank you for trying to you know, get people's experiences, get knowledge out into the product community. It's really important. We, we lift each other up. That's what we need to do. That's it for this week's episode of PM Hub Podcast, guys. If you enjoyed it, definitely share your social media, LinkedIn, leave a five-star review so we can reach more audience. And if you have any suggestions, definitely send me a note at cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. Also subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm Cyrus Shirazian, and until next show, stay safe and healthy.